Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. And good evening once again. I'm William Hosea. Welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show in our 12th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening. I'm Cornelius Wright. And in today's broadcast, you'll also hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African-American world of news and local events of interest, all in the next hour on Bring It On. First up, this week begins International Education Week at IU. One topic close to our hearts is black students studying and traveling abroad. Tonight, we've invited Victoria Jones, Brandon Washington, Gabrielle Steenberger, and Dr. Charlie Nelms to join us to discuss the merits and memories one can derive from taking advantage of an opportunity to study and or travel abroad. Charlie, Gabrielle, Brandon, and Victoria, welcome to Bring It On. Dr. Nelms, I got one quick question for you before we actually get started. Are you still the Baptist boy? I'm still the Baptist boy of the soil. All right, then. <laughs> you remember going back to the uh, banquet earlier this year? I do. I do Dr. indeed. Dr. Nelms never disappoints. All right, well, let's get to it. We've got a lot of people here that have been overseas, and uh, I'm going to start with my left since, since you were here first. And just let us know, Victoria, your experience of traveling overseas why you wanted to travel overseas, and what you got out of it. Yeah, so last summer for two weeks, I got to go to Brazil, and I studied the African diaspora in Brazil, and that just really intrigued me because I'm interested in black studies. Um, I really liked that I got to study the African diaspora somewhere outside the U.S. because that's something I didn't really know that much about. So is, uh, how would you describe or define the program? And this is for anybody. Um, for my program, first, before we left, we had um, like two hours for once a week where we had like a pre-departure class where we learned about race in Brazil. And then once we got there every day, we had like two-hour lectures and then we had ex- excursions where we did fun things like um, dance workshops and learned about the history in Brazil and race in Brazil. And Gabrielle, did you have a similar experience? I did. Um, my freshman year, I went to the Yucatan for service learning in Mexico and um, essentially it's, it's very interesting seeing how race is understood um, abroad, outside of the context of the United States. Um, Keep going. We're going to come back to that. Absolutely. Um, and then my second time studying abroad this past summer, I went to Florence, Italy, and uh, studied photography there. I love the food in Florence. I've got a question for Charlie, but it's a little different. It's a, a little different path. You've traveled extensively throughout your career and your life. And I'm going to go a little different direction as a person that's not just going to study some of the advantages of just a black person traveling abroad. Well, first of all, I think that uh, there's enormous value to people, period, whether they are African-American or other ethnic groups. Because one of the things that it does, it allows one to get, it forces you really to get out of your comfort zone, okay? 
and to begin to view the world through a different lens that is certainly not Western on the one hand and is not American on the other. And so that's the thing I think I enjoy most about it. But one of the things I've discovered in my travels for now close to 50 years is that people are more likely than they are different, despite the language differences, the cultural differences, gender, and so on and so forth, socioeconomic status. But people are more likely than they are different. And that's the thing that I enjoy most about traveling, meeting these people whose names I can't always pronounce, okay? Uh, and they can't pronounce mine either. Uh, uh, but at any rate, it's, 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 it's really neat. You know, I, I totally agree. I can recall traveling in Europe for nine weeks in 1972 and going to a couple of the Eastern Bloc countries, which was such a unique experience for them to visualize an American. And, and, and you know, we have a way that people visualize us here. We know how minorities are, are thought of, but it's kind of reassuring for me anyway it was, mm -hmm. to see how the other world views you. Now, advantages of traveling abroad when you got back home, how did it help you in your studies? Um, for me, I'm double majoring in international studies and African-American, African diaspora studies. So just to see what it means to be black somewhere else in the United States was interesting, to see that there's black people up in just the United States opened my eyes to different experiences, but also similar experiences. So Gabrielle, you mentioned uh, perceptions of race when you visited Yucatan. Exactly what did you mean by that? And, and, and what was your experience? Well, um, the area that we were studying in was pretty remote. It was pretty rural. And there were actually a lot of people of indigenous descent. Um, I'm Mexican, so it's very, uh, it's an issue close to my heart. And I was really able to get in touch with my own indigeneity and, uh, like you said, how we have more alike, more things alike than we do that separate us. Um, for me, it helped me understand um, concepts of intersectionality internationally. Um, we often face the same issues. I also experienced this. I was in London this past summer, and um, with their whole um, issue of Brexit, I was able to talk to a couple of locals and talk to them about, you know, issues concerning immigrants and refugees and how really we had very similar thoughts about um, how we should be helping different groups of marginalized people. And um, that really was very fulfilling to me that there were people like-minded all over the world that I was able to connect with. And uh, this is actually for anybody. I'm really curious. Um, how would you, now of course you, you kind of advocate for studying abroad, right? How would you sell the program to someone, uh, let's say a freshman just entering college what would you say to that person, him or her, to convince them to participate in, uh, in this program and the benefits of it? For me, I would say that the only way, I, I think we face a lot of hatred in our country, in our world right now, and the only way that we can overcome hatred is by abolishing ignorance. The only way that we can accomplish that is by widening our horizons and becoming aware of the way other people handle their lives and handle the issues that they face. And the more that we can learn in that regard, um, the better off we'll be, in my opinion. Now for some students that may be listening or their parents that are interested in traveling abroad to study, how would they do that? I'd say definitely go about looking for scholarships through your different departments of study and then different scholarship opportunities just through the university in general. There's so much money out there for marginalized students that have never been abroad. So definitely look for all the scholarships you can. Now, but, but where would they even find out about the classes that are abroad for them to look into it? 
Um, I definitely have been to the Office of Overseas Studies a lot and talked to the different peer advisors and the advisors there. Visiting the website, just talking to different professors in my department, seeing opportunities available. Definitely just networking and getting to know people because they want to help you out and make sure you're successful. Is that Brandon? That works. Yes, Brandon. <laughs> oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. We've been we've been kind of uh, uh, leaving you out of the conversation, but go ahead, Brandon. No worries. No worries. Uh, one thing that really worked well for me upon entering Indiana University in 2010 was getting involved. I learned of the uh, the Ghana in Europe in London study abroad trip my spring semester of my senior year in high school. So um, as early as going into group scholars program that summer. I hit the campus running and just really wanted to get as much information as possible and then stellar academically, got involved with the union board and other organizations on campus and learned of that program. And, uh, and this, once I went and experienced that time abroad and then seen how amazing that experience was, the only thing I ever could do was pay it forward and tell other students how important it was because one of the greatest ways to expand your consciousness is to travel, is to travel the world, travel your countries and cities. And, uh, and that was my biggest takeaway uh, from uh, studying abroad in Ghana. So, you know, it kind of sounds like everyone sitting in here at the table has spent time abroad. I spent quite a bit of time uh, in Japan, and um, I think I'm a better person for it. But uh, Dr. Nelms, why do you think that some of the greatest African-American advocates, educators, writers, and artists often spent good amounts of time uh outside of the U.S. Yeah, and, and I don't mean to be flippant when I say this, but uh, at the height of racial segregation in this country, mm -hmm. you know, African-American artists uh, were restricted to where they could travel, where they could live, where they could eat, where they could sleep, where they could entertain, okay? And so uh, making an escape to Paris or to uh, someplace in Europe was really an opportunity for them to really showcase their talent on the one hand and really live out their true selves. And so if you look at the list of people all the way from James uh, Baldwin, yeah. you know, to, uh, to Louis Armstrong, uh, you just name the range of people who actually live, Josephine Baker. In fact, I was in, uh, I was in uh, Amsterdam and Brussels and all of those places this summer, and I had an opportunity to go and actually see where Josephine Baker lived, you know. And so, but so they had no choice, okay? It was an opportunity for them because they refused to subject and live their lives according to the racist segregationist in this country. Okay? So would you say that it's not so much the case today? Yeah, I think that there are people who live and, st uh, and, and, and work abroad uh, in terms of uh, expanding their horizons in terms of reaching a different kind of audience. And so they do it for those reasons, I think, in many instances. But it's not because they don't have access in the same way that they did in the 1940s, 50s, and yeah. 60s. But I want to come back to this question about what Please would do. I say to sell the, the notion of study abroad. I would say three things to students. One is that education is more than a collection of classes. Education is more than a collection of classes, okay? It's more than a, an accumulation of grades and grade point averages, okay? The second thing that I would say is, is that you, you have to be a global citizen. If you're going to compete with people from places whose, uh, countries whose names you can't even pronounce, okay? You have to be culturally competent. And you can't be culturally competent by reading your Western Civilization book, okay? Or going to your programs on campus with your fraternity, your sorority, no matter what it is, okay? Uh, and the third thing that I would say is, is that students need some way of distinguishing themselves from other people who are majoring 
you know, in various disciplines and that kind of thing. And study abroad is one way to do that. If you're an African-American student or Hispanic or person of color, you're going to be in that category of somewhere between 4 and 8% of persons from your ethnic background actually studying abroad. It's a very small number. So that's one way to really distinguish yourself from other people by acquiring these experiences that are transferable. And then the final thing that I would say to people is, is that if you really want to understand and appreciate Western culture and the U.S. culture in particular, you need to get out of it, get outside right. of it, and look back at it as opposed to staying in it. You need something to compare it there to. There you go. Indeed. And, and you brought up a point that I was just about to ask with my next question, the, the advantage in the workplace of traveling abroad, uh, studying abroad. Uh, you covered that. You know, we're, th we're in this global economy where right now so many of the companies are leaving this country, and we're one of the few nations in the world that the people are not bilingual. Everyone else speaks another language but us. Everyone else speaks English. Yeah, well, you know, it's going to come to a point. And you know what? We expect them to. Exactly. When we go over there. And, and that expectation is really arrogant on our part. Right, right. Um, So you said you're getting ready to travel to three other countries I very am. soon. Why don't you tell our listeners about that and what, uh, what you plan on doing and... So next semester, I'm um, studying around in three different cities. I will be in Paris, Cape Town, and London, um, six weeks each for a semester program. Um, it's through CIE's Open Campus program. I really look forward to that and just learning about what it means to be a black woman in these different spaces. I'm really intrigued to learn about. Wait a minute. Can, can you say that again about being a black woman? <laughs> what it means to be a black woman in uh, different spaces. So when I went to Brazil, it was predominantly black area. So there was a lot of seeing people that look like me or look similar to me. But being in Europe and seeing how to navigate, navigate these spaces is really intriguing to me. And then also being in Cape Town and being in such an important area for the African diaspora is really intriguing and really interested about. Brandon, that kind of brings me to a question for you. As a black man from America traveling in Africa, how were you viewed? Um, it's quite interesting because... Um, just the level of, as a college student, you're, you essentially are poor, <laughs> but just going to a place like Ghana that is uh, very, um, uh, I guess you could say, westernized in some regards in comparison to other African nations, I was referred to as, uh, a lot of them will call me Igbe, call me King, <laughs> and it was, it was really funny when a lot of times we were hearing it because I went there with the perspective of, I wanted to learn so much from them, like these these are my these where my ancestors come from. These are the places where we once had these you know amazing magnificent kingdoms. And and when I went there, it was like the opposite. It wasn't necessarily the opposite, but people were more so like just excited to speak to me and excited to learn things about me being from America. And um, so I think that cross cultural exchange was uh, was also one of the, the greatest benefits because going to going to Ghana, I didn't know what to really expect because you know the images that are portrayed in the media. Um, the images that are portrayed in our textbooks, uh, you don't get quite the um, the more the most holistic uh, perspective of what it really is. So to go there as a as a young black man and have my perspective change on on my own religion, on spirituality, on on health, and all these different uh, spectrums of life, um, change my change my life for the better. And also being able to go to Jerusalem last year with uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Kevin Brown from the law school. Um, that was another amazing experience just to see what, and that was at the time while I was in my graduate program studying uh, race and trauma, 
uh, throughout in, within the Triple ADS department and seeing what trauma looks like from a different different oppressive state in Palestine. So um, really uh, intriguing um, uh, comparison between two different places, but all in all, were really great experiences seeing how black people are viewed and also seeing the type of um, um, type of groups that people uh, created, like in Palestine and Jerusalem, they even had a, um, a Palestinian Panther Party that was created after the Black Panthers to fight back some of the oppressive um, tactics that were uh, being pushed upon them by the government. So it was really, really intriguing uh, experiences in both different spaces. Could you expand a little bit on about, you said that it changed you personally. Mm-hmm. What were some of those changes that you experienced? Uh, definitely. So one of the major, major uh, changes was uh, how I viewed religion. Um, just growing up in a, with a Baptist Christian background, uh, my dad's from the South, um, or Kentucky, my mom's from Indiana, and being able to, to see what Christianity looked like in Africa, but also to see what their indigenous uh, religion looked like, or spirituality system, which was a mix between Vodum or voodoo and Christianity. They called it the fetish experience. So to go to that experience and see the voodoo priests um, practice their different um, aspects of uh, spirituality and worship was, um, I get chills and, and goosebumps just telling the story and, and, the, and thinking of the images that I saw and how skewed our views are on anything that's opposite or that contradicts or different from our own foundational religion. So being able to see how spiritual people can be and how moved they can be um, just by their own people, by their own energies, by their own foods, um, it was it was eye-opening to say the very least. And, had, and like I said, uh, had changed forever my views on religion, and which was a, the, one of the greater things in regards to me going to Jerusalem. You know, there's so much religion, religious context that, you know, that exists there. Uh, to see the spiritual uh, realities uh, that existed in Ghana, then to go to a place where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam exist all in one space um, is something that I still can't wrap my mind around today just uh, as an experience and being, being so blessed to see all those different uh, perspectives from a religious standpoint. So, Brandon, are you trying to tell us you went from Baptist to voodoo? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Actually, uh, actually you can say um, I've kind of, uh, I guess you could say, lost my Western view of religion and uh, and just kind of more so adopted a more open, spiritual, um, meditated, uh, meditation type, uh, uh, I guess, spiritual system that I kind of adopted in, in learning on the go as I travel the world, as I speak to different people from different backgrounds. So it's something that that you you have to experience growing up and, and, and as you get older because you have to challenge the things that you were raised with or you always just accept them and not know anything different. And that just goes back to the essence of what studying abroad is. Okay. Um, I'm wondering, have the three of you, any, any uh, of you, have you traveled together? You mean, what do you mean together? Between the three of you. No. Have you gone to the same places at the same time? No. No. Okay, so you all bring <laughs> different uh, experiences and, and perspectives. The reason I asked that question was because uh, I really wanted to see if Gabrielle had uh, uh, the same experience being Mexican-American as uh, Victoria being African-American. It was very interesting. It's been interesting both times. Um, everywhere I travel, people 
view me. I'm kind of racially ambiguous. Mm -hmm. um, and so people are not quite sure how to approach me sometimes. So um, in the United States, uh, I'm fairly white appearing. And so people either assume that I'm white or people who like kind of know Latino features will say, oh, yeah, she's, she's Mexican, she's Latina. Um, in Mexico, oh, I'm not Mexican. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> not at all. Um, I had a, a friend of mine was on the trip with me. I, I didn't meet her until this trip, and we got very close on the trip. But she's just very, um, very ethereal. She's got blue eyes, and that was um, I had. We had several people come up to us and tell us that they'd never seen anybody with blue eyes before. And so um, the experience um, in Mexico for me was very different than my experience in Italy because um, a lot a lot of people in Italy were more accepting of um, being me being biracial and being multicultural um, because I think that there's a lot of that um, in those areas, in these big metropolitan areas, there's lots of people of different backgrounds and um, there's not that quick assumption. We have, we have a, a very quick assumption in the United States of people's racial or ethnic background. I didn't experience that so much in Italy. People were um, very open to the idea of being Latina um, I had people ask me, you know, what, what does that what does that mean? Is that like Spanish? And I was like, eh, kind of, but those are our colonizers, so kind of not too. But yeah. um, so ex explaining our <coughs> racial categories to people in other countries is very interesting because they don't see um, race the same way as we do. And um, I'm a proud American. However, at the same time, traveling has allowed me to realize that as Americans, we're very arrogant and we're fairly ignorant as well. Um, so learning about racial constructs outside of the context of the United States, I think, as a young person, is vital. It's indispensable to an education. So actually, you bring up a very good point. Victoria, was your experience different from one country to the next because uh, as a black woman? Um, in Brazil, the interesting thing was that people really couldn't tell that I was not from Brazil, which is something yeah, yeah. I didn't really expect. Um, until I you started talking. Yeah, so I'd planned on, like, getting my hair braided and not have to worry about doing things like that. But the fact that I had, like, my afro and I did my twist outs, people, like, thought I was from there, like, thought I was from Rio de Janeiro or thought I was from, like, Bahia, which is another state in Brazil. So that was something really interesting, something I really liked. Like, people couldn't tell the, where I was from. They just treated me as, like, like I was one of them. So I thought that was really cool. I found that interesting traveling in Europe in 72. And I'm going to go to Charlie with this one also as a black man. They didn't know if I was from Africa. They didn't know if I was from the Caribbean. They didn't know if I was from the USA, unless you took your passport out, which is, you know, color coordinated with your country. How, did you experience similar things in your travels with people trying to, yeah, not so much Americans, but, you know, yeah. as has been said, that they look at race kind of differently. So yeah. I, I think with my bald head, and <laughs> <laughs> my bald head and my gray beard sort of threw people off and they weren't quite sure. And they listened to my accent and they're trying to figure out where I'm from, you know, based on my accent, they couldn't quite figure it out. But going way back to when I first went to Niger back in 1975, okay, um, I, I, I went, you know, with this whole notion that I was going to be accepted, that there was going to be this spread out for me, and people looked at me like I was, you know, from another planet because they they were really not sure. It was French-speaking country and so on and so forth, very unstable politically at the time. And so they were really trying to figure out, A, who are you? And B, you must work for the CIA. You must have some reason for being here that's not actually educational and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, but so people tried to figure me out going in the 70s, but not so much more recently uh, when I was um, in Africa and Europe and places uh, within the last year. 
But in Brazil, one of the things I found really fascinating about Brazil is that many of the people there in, are in denial about race. And they would say to me, like this summer when I was there, and I'm having a conversation, I say, you know, how do the Afro-Brazilians uh, respond to, you know, issues of discrimination? They said, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We don't have race here. We don't see race here. We, we don't discriminate. And I'm saying to myself, well, you and I have a different understanding of history and, 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 and economics yeah. and so on and so forth. So I decided that I would not pursue that. Uh, but one of the largest uh, 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 repositories of slavery, if you want to use that, would be, I think, Brazil, if I'm not mistaken, a very large number of slaves. Now, now they would say they've, they've conquered the issue of race because they don't see race in the way that we do in the U.S. We're just preoccupied with the notion of race in this country. And I think that's one of the things that's holding us back as a country, uh, unfortunately. And I wish we could just have a good conversation about it without people becoming as defensive as uh, they tend to. Well, you, you mentioned something earlier when I asked a question about blacks traveling abroad, that everyone should travel abroad. Sure. And I agree that if more Americans were to travel abroad, a lot of the biases and things that they think are going wrong with this country would sure. be dispelled. They yeah. really they, they would certainly be ameliorated. I mean, they would, they, would, they would have a better contextual framework for considering them uh, that I think people don't have. We just watch too much television here. I mean, I, I don't think you have to really travel abroad necessarily. You just need to read more, you know? And, and don't wait for Women's History Week and Latina History Week and African American and Native American. We've segmented, you know, our, our country in such a way that we don't learn to appreciate other cultures. And even if you look at the cultural requirements in the curriculum at colleges and universities around the country, okay, it's a very biased kind of orientation, a very negative kind of depiction of Africa, for example, okay, just as one example. And, and also just even discerning between vacationing and study abroad, because a lot of Americans vacation, but when they go abroad, it's just that, the vacation. So even the times that I've been abroad, um, even when I went to Mexico, um, I made sure I incorporated some type of cultural competency or, or, or cross-cultural exchange between myself and the people I was willing to trip to actually explore and see a different side of the, uh, the part of Mexico I was in rather than just going to the beach and staying on the resort and things like that. So that was also a, a different perspective to add. It's like if you vacation, like add that piece to what you're doing to, to get that, that cultural engagement. Brandon, you we only have a couple of minutes left, and I want to get everybody uh, in uh, the last couple of minutes, but you've used that term cultural competency a few times now. Why don't you tell us exactly what you mean by that? Definitely. Um, it, in the way that I view cultural competency is is the the opportunity and the chance for an individual to engage within another culture that either differs from their own or they didn't grow up with uh, experiencing so um, in cultural competency happens, you know, for somebody from the east side of Indianapolis um, uh, uh, intermingling with someone from the west side of Indianapolis or the north side. So it's just it's, it's the opportunity and the and the chance to be able to um, to experience someone else's culture and able to and able to exchange it in a way where it's beneficial to all people involved and uh, and able to learn from that. Okay, so um, one more question. How would you leverage your experience uh, in traveling abroad as it relates to a job interview or, or just being on a job or, or say, going to a, a different college 
And I want I'd like for all of you to chime in on that one. Okay. Well, for me, one way that I always use um, on my resume, um, I always use it as more as a global experience or international experience because the views and perspectives of me being able to talk to other individuals in my ability to uh, speak in ways in which I may not be comfortable because I'm not aware of a certain environment or situation, but being able to ex- still exist in a space like Ghana, London, Liverpool, Jerusalem, Mexico, Cuba, this, I was in Cuba in March, in these different places. So that adds a level of ability and, and, and honestly skill to be able to navigate these different spaces and be able to, to exist and, uh, and, and survive and live. Um, I just say that studying abroad helps you learn how to be adaptable to different experiences, and that's something in the job market that's a soft school that's really important. So just explaining to your future employer during an interview that you're able to learn new skills and you're able to learn from different environments and you're open to new experiences and you're open to learning from them. Gabrielle, how do you think that might help your career path? I would like to bring it back to what you said earlier, that we are more alike than we are different. And I think that traveling abroad has made me more patient it's made me more tolerant it's made me quite frankly more intelligent and i think that students who have the opportunity to study abroad should absolutely take advantage of it because in the world of you know a workplace um our careers we're going to have to encounter lots of different kinds of people who have all different kinds of experiences and the best way that we can relate to those people is by trying to understand their experience and by studying abroad you're forced to you know um, be a part of something that's outside of your comfort zone and Charlie you know you've traveled abroad for uh, many years uh, the, some of the differences when you first traveled up until now and just the experience in, in general I think probably the, the major difference is I'm less fearful Okay, I mean, when you when you travel the first time, second, and third, you know, you're sort of fearful. You're not quite sure what to expect. You know, everything from what the cuisine is going to be like to what the conversations are going to be like. And even though we don't always speak the same language, whether they'll understand me and I'll understand them. But you know, when you get into putting those differences aside, it's amazing how well you can communicate with people whose language is really quite different from your own. Okay. And so it's that fear, you know, being able to get over the fear, the apprehension maybe is a better term than the fear. And then the other, the other part of it is, is that uh, it, it forces you to, if you're really interested, to stay in contact with people. Okay. Uh, and you discover some things about your insecurities. And, uh, and that's really good to know you know, to know that um, and to be able to talk about it openly and honestly and that kind of thing. What I hope will happen, though, as students like Victoria and Gabrielle and, 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 um, and Brandon and others come back, is that students at Indiana University have an opportunity to engage and interact with them and really learn from their experiences. That's one of the things that I'd really like to see more of. That's not to say that you all don't do that. But I think that is one of the ways in which we can share that international experience with students who are not uh, uh, able to, to, to study abroad. Briefly, we've got about two minutes. Have any of you ex- interacted with a lot of the international students here on campus now and kind of shared experiences from their point of view possibly now that you've traveled some? 
I actually have. Um, I had the opportunity to have lunch with a woman the other day. I saw her in the cafeteria, and she was out of place, like visibly out of place. And I asked her if she'd like to have lunch with me. Uh, sat down with her, and she was from Costa Rica, and she was um, here pursuing her master's degree. And we had a very long conversation about um, you know, the benefits of, of international travel. And uh, I'm always I'm always looking for new connections and new interactions with people. So I was very fulfilled by that. You know, I wanted to ask uh, if you have dealt with a difficult situation while you are traveling abroad. And by that, I mean, uh, let's say some type of uh, difficult social encounter. How about having your passport stolen uh, <laughs> in Italy? No, not well. I mean, like with uh, with a person from another country. I definitely have. Um, okay. In Italy, there is um, a very masculine culture. We were warned um, at the very beginning of our program that men will yell at you in the street and men may touch you on the street. Do not react to them. Um, and I saw a girl actually um, react to a man who, you know, had yelled something vulgar at her on the street um, and he got up in her face and was very physical with her and that was very um, kind of harrowing for me because in the United States I have the privilege to not have to deal with aggressive um, men like that most of the time and uh, it was most just of the time most huh? of the time <laughs> every once in a while but um, there was it was something it made me more thankful um, for the privileges and the um, you know the wonderful things that we have in the United States that women don't have to deal with things like that but it did make me thankful to come home and be able to walk down the street by myself at night. Okay, Dr. Nels, we got less yeah. than a minute left. You yeah, this summer uh, while in, in Paris uh, there was this uh, server at the restaurant and uh, it was as though he was waiting on everyone but us and we were the only blacks in the restaurant, you know, in, in the place, right? So I'm just getting antsy. And so I said to Janetta, this, this, this person here is not behaving properly now. And so I immediately went after a while into the race piece. And I had come to understand that dining is very much a social experience, okay? And people come with their iPads and all of this. And so they leave you alone. So it wasn't that he was ignoring me is the way it was explained to me. So he's really not ignoring you. He's just accustomed. He thought that you wanted to be left alone. Now, well, I still left feeling maybe it was something else. But at <laughs> least that was an explanation that I had not thought about uh, before. Okay. Um, but at any rate, so eating out, restaurants out is, a, is another way. It's a, it's a social kind of experience as opposed to just having a meal. Okay, well, that is all that we have time for, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to come and uh, talk to us about your experiences tonight. Thank you. Uh, we want to thank Victoria Jones, Brandon Washington, Gabrielle Steenberger, and the Baptist boy, Dr. Charlie Nelms, for joining us to discuss the merits and memories one can derive from taking advantage of an opportunity to study and or travel abroad. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. 
We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address once again is bringiton at wfhb.org.
Stations, Compass, Open to homes in strange clothes. Let the seam show, translate, pass on, transmission and ocean names get Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. Explore articles, photos, essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision, online at limestonepost.com. Support for WFHB. HB comes from the Writer Film Series for more than a quarter of a century, presenting foreign language, independent, and classic American films at locations around Bloomington. Information about this week's screening at thewriter.com. You just heard This Was Made Here by international singing sensation Mukleet from the CD project When the People Move. She has been a regular performing artist in Bloomington with The Lotus. This is bringing on the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? If so, you're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. It's a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Simply go to Twitter.com and search for WFHB News, where you can always visit WFHB News website at wfhb.org slash news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at wfhb.org. It's time now to give you the latest perspective on the people, news, and issues affecting the black community. For Bring It On, I'm Cornelius Wright. I'm William Hosea. And in recognition of Dr. Charlie Nelm's astute perceptions on African-American life in the United States and abroad, we now present a blog post of his that appeared in the Huffington Post. 10 Things That Worry Me Most as an African-American Baby Boomer. Whenever I talk with my baby boomer friends, especially those like me who grew up in the Deep South, I quickly, quickly discover that our worries about the state of affairs in America in general and the status of African-Americans in particular, concerns and frightens us. As Americans who came out of the age of the 60s and 70s, who played a crucial role in the civil rights movement of that era, many of us became the first of our race to be employed in our respective careers and to be promoted to positions of leadership. I recall eagerly awaiting the arrival of Jet, Ebony, and Essence, all national magazines devoted to showcasing the accomplishments of African-Americans. Another publication, Minorities in Higher Education, now the diverse issues in higher education, at first, at first focused primarily on blacks in academia. Like many of my friends, I was elated by the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the appointment of Thurgood Marshall to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1967. Last July, he would have been 109 years old. A pivotal moment in this brilliant man's legal career is dramatized in the recent film Marshall, 
directed by African-American filmmaker Reg, uh, Reginald Hudlin. It is crucial for understanding Marshall's work in the criminal justice system, still strife with discrimination, and his struggle to end still rampant segregation in the North. In the 80s and 90s, I was energized by the election of increasing numbers of blacks to positions of all levels of government. The election of Barack Obama as the 44th president of the United States in 2008 signaled to many of us civil rights activists and that, that this nation was on its way to becoming more representative, civil, and responsive relative to the needs of minorities and other historically disenfranchised people. Some people, primarily whites, went so far as to conclude that the U.S. had entered a post-racial era. Of course, many of us of the darker hue knew that this was not the case, and we were proven right when both mainstream and fringe political groups immediately and publicly announced their plans to make President Obama a one-term president. While I have always been had a keen interest in politics, especially political communications, my interest skyrocketed during the 2016 presidential campaign. With the 24-7 news cycle extended by cable and social media outlets, the campaign seemed intermittable. At times it seemed the exchange between candidates centered on who could say the nastiest and most insulting things about their opponents. Everything, to be fair, everything appeared to be fair game, and the media reported nearly every attack launched by candidates and their surrogates. Almost a year after the election, the presidential campaign feels as, as if it never ended, and it is being continued by the winner. I am growing increasingly weary and concerned about a number of things I see taking place in the country I love and for which I put on the uniform of the U.S. Marine Corps. I put on that uniform for people with whom I agree as well as with those whom I disagree. And there are many across the political landscape whose views differ from my own. I know firsthand of the power of protest and am a witness to how it transformed my life and those countless others from my race and generation. My views about the current political protests led by NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick is a story for another day. Today, I'm frightened for my country and all its inhabitants. I haven't been this scared since I was a youngster when I came in contact with KKK in the Arkansas Delta and wondered whether they would burn our little country shack to the ground with our family in it. Those days have long since passed, but the KKK has expanded beyond the, Blue, the Buck Lake Road where I grew up. They recently showed up in Charlottesville, Virginia, with Nazi sympathizers carrying torches and short shouting their goal to take our country back. I'm scared as hell, and I believe there are thousands who share my fear, frustration, and, and anxiety about the future of our country. There are 10 things I'm frightened about and want to bring to the attention of those who can and must take a stand now, not later. <clears throat> Number one, the alarming growth of hate groups in America is a clear and present danger. With social media outreach to a younger generation, this documented escalation has already had a grave impact on hate speech and hate crimes. With tacit or outright approval from the president, we face a dangerous warping of social norms and damage to our social fabric that this may take generations to repair. Number two, the increasing prospect of a nuclear war incident is a worrying threat to the entire global community. Ironically, or perhaps keeping this threat in mind, this year's Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to ICON, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. But every day that, 
hyper, hyperbolic insults and threats are hurled between President Trump and North Korea's Kim Jong-un fans the flames and may bring us that much closer to catastrophe. Number three, the divide between the wealthiest and the poorest continues to grow. Soaring economic inequality impacts many aspects of life, such as education, crime, health, and even how long people live. Number four, attacks on the on the proposed rollbacks of laws protecting voter rights are endangering the very foundation of our democracy. The right to vote was one for which countless people fought and even died, many within our lifetime. Even so, voter suppression is on the rise under President Trump. Number five, the mass incarceration of black men has reached unprecedented levels and has the public attention to widespread instances of abuse in the criminal justice system. The disparity in incarceration rates can no longer be ignored. Ignored. In 11 states, at least one in 20 black men is in a state prison. Number six, declining educational attainment rates continue to be a problem and there is a documented racial disparity in school suspension rates. Black students are suspended from school at three times the average rate of other children, often for the same infractions. Number seven, with the election of President Trump, the American first approach that has been renamed America alone by some is widely perceived by global community as an isolationist and often reckless, especially when taking a hardline approach to DACA and immigration and issuing travel bans that have been protested against unconstitutional and anti-Muslim biases. We have three more, but for time's sake, we are going to uh, include those in our next week's show. So with that, William. That was a look at African-American headline news from around the world for this week. Tune in again next week for the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to know what you think of current black issues. Please send your comments to bringiton at wfhb.org. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Cornelius Wright. You're listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 on your radio and live on the web at wfhb.org.
You just heard another selection by tonight's featured international artist, McCleet, from the CD project, When the People Move. It's now time to bring you the events of interest in the black community. For Bring It On, I'm Cornelius Wright. I'm William Hosea. Black Minds Matter, an eight-week public discussion on black boys and men in education. Mondays at 7.30 p.m. Starting November 6th, Ascription to Intelligence, November 13th, Assumptions of Criminality, November 20th, Campus Climates and Non-Cognitive Outcomes, November 27th, Promising Practices for Teaching and Learning, December 4th, Holistic Support for Black Male Leaders, and December 11th, Advancing Black Male Policy, Support and Research. If you have an event or happening the African American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or, if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to thank Victoria Jones, Brandon Washington, Gabrielle Steenberger, and Dr. Charlie Nelms for joining us to discuss the merits and memories one can derive from taking advantage of an opportunity to study and or travel abroad. And one more addition, Victoria Jones. We can't forget Victoria. I said Victoria. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our news editor is Michael Nowlin. Tonight's board engineer was Kirsten Payton. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Cornelius Wright. And I'm William Hosea. Please exercise caution and care. Actually, let me just uh, blow past that one. Um, Be sure to tune in next Monday, November 13th at 6 p.m. for another exciting broadcast coming your way next week on Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.